Paganism in general is not about beliefs, but about practices and how you approach the world. Within ADF, we are considered an orthopractic religion, not orthodoxic. So mm-hmm. if you're in an ADF ritual, it's going to look a certain way. We have a standard liturgy that we follow, steps we do. There are certain expectations of behavior. But you can be a member of ADF and fully participate in any ADF event without believing anything that anybody else does. We truly do not care because it's what you do that matters. Welcome to Everything is Spiritual, a podcast from Soul Care Urban Retreat Center. We're talking with local folks, faith leaders, creatives, thinkers, and community advocates, getting personal about their faith and spirituality and how it shows up in their daily life and work. I'm Kelly Skinner, your host, and I'm sharing these heart-centered conversations to invite you to become more aware that everything is spiritual and to deeply connect with what is most true and alive in your own everyday life. So welcome back to the Everything is Spiritual podcast. We are setting a big table and talking with all sorts of people across East Central Illinois about how their spirituality shows up in their day to day. So guests from all walks of life with different experiences and perspectives talk about their evolving beliefs and the intersection of spirituality, faith and their everyday life and work. And so my guest today is Ashley Price. And she's a neo-pagan druid, an animist, and a spirit worker. And she's also the current senior druid of the Prairie Sky Grove, an open and inclusive pagan religious organization in Champaign-Urbana and also serving the surrounding areas. So in English, ADF stands for a Druid Fellowship. It's a global pagan church based on ancient Indo-European traditions. Uh, You might be familiar with Celtic or Norse or Slavic, Greeks, Romans, Persians, Vedics, and others. And they express their religious traditions through public worship, study, and fellowship. And so through her local grove, Ashley is working to create the space for an inclusive and place-based pagan culture to develop. Her spiritual practice is informed by her work as a movement teacher and her obsession with dance. And she says radical embodiment is the name of the game for her. So welcome, Ashley, to the Everything Spiritual podcast. Hi, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm really excited to learn more about, you know, Prairie Sky Grove and about you and everything that you can share with us today. I'm more than happy to share. Wonderful. You know, a lot of times we start these conversations just with a brief version of people's stories. You know, everybody has a story about how their spiritual tradition and beliefs and understandings have evolved over the course of your life. So have you always identified as part of the pagan church? And if not, how did that come about for you? So... What's really interesting is most people wouldn't talk about a pagan church. Pagan is kind of an umbrella term for a variety of practices, paths, beliefs that emerged in the mid 20th century after the witchcraft laws in England, like when England decriminalized witchcraft. 
So a lot of what pagans do is very eclectic, very based on, you know, this thing they find there, that thing they find there, interactions with each other. But there's very few broad organized churches within paganism. I'm a member of one of the few, and we have chosen to bill ourselves specifically as a church, not just my grove, but the larger organization, because from the beginning, it's been trying to create more of a public face for paganism, but a way for pagans to gather safely by, frankly, mainstreaming it. Mm-hmm. We're not as scary and weird as people think we are. Mm-hmm. So I have always pretty much identified as pagan. I was raised as not religious, but I fell in love with Greek mythology when I was like eight years old, as many kids do. And that introduced me to the whole idea of there being multiple gods and multiple religions out there. And I remember being pretty young thinking, well, they could be right and they could be right and they could be right. Why not all of them? Mm-hmm. That I, at my core, I've never believed that there's only one right answer. There's only one right path. Mm-hmm. So I fell into polytheism pretty early. I've never really had another religion. And my paganism, my polytheism has changed and developed over the years. I had a brief stint practicing as a Wiccan, as most baby pagans do in the 90s. There's plenty of Wiccans still now, but that was definitely the thing. And then I was feeling really drawn to something that was more culturally based, that was tied to the past and not just emerging from the 1950s occult tradition. And I discovered Druidry when I was 11, actually, (laughs) through the book Miss of Avalon by Marion Zimmer Bradley. And that led to some internet rabbit holes. I found the organization I'm in, ADF, which in not English, in Irish is pronounced Unreact Fane. Thank you. Um, I didn't want to butcher that. So, <laughs> yeah, nobody calls it, nobody actually says that hardly <laughs> ever, but yeah, it's pronounced Unreact Fane, and that means our own druidry in Irish, but mostly we just call it ADF. So, I found that when I was 20, and it's been an organizational spiritual home since ever since because it's such a sprawling and inclusive <laughs> diverse practice i've there's been a lot of space for my beliefs my practices my interests my skills to evolve within that umbrella it's one of my favorite things about it mhm yeah it gives you room to grow and learn and maybe even mature some of your beliefs, which is actually really nice because I would say the mainstream religions maybe provide that same kind of container. And it's nice to know that, not that this isn't a mainstream religion, but that, (laughs) yeah, but that there's the same kind of container or pathway within that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's really nice. So give us a little bit more of an introduction to neo-pagan druidism and ADF specifically? So druidry, I am honestly a giant nerd, so I can't give you the whole history, but short version, druidry started emerging as we know it in the 1980s out of some other, honestly, a joke mystical tradition. Mm-hmm. And it's been characterized by connection to the land, typically being interested or resonating with Celtic mythology, the Celtic gods and goddesses, but you don't have to be a theist of any sort to be into Druidry. 
and just more practices that are about, I would say, devotional worship rather than personal empowerment. Um, that's one of the things that tends to characterize Druidry as opposed to witchcraft. But again, all of this is very fluid and in flux and you want to have three different S2 druids and you're going to get three different opinions. Mm. Very much like that. Uh, we tend to be more bookish than other styles of paganism, but that again is also not universally true. You go into a druid's house, you're going to find a wall of books and they're all going to be kind of out there in mythology and mysticism and things like that. ADF is one of the things that appealed to me when I was younger and still does appeal to me now is that it does not have a belief system. Paganism in general is not about beliefs, but about practices and how you approach the world. Within ADF, we are considered an orthopractic religion, not orthodoxic. So mm -hmm. if you're in an ADF ritual, it's going to look a certain way. We have a standard liturgy that we follow, steps we do. There are certain expectations of behavior. But you can be a member of ADF and fully participate in any ADF event without believing anything that anybody else does. We truly do not care because it's what you do that matters. And I will be perfectly honest, I don't talk about my own personal beliefs within Grove that I run. They're going to be different from other people's, and that's fine. The beliefs don't matter nearly as much as the actions and the ethics. Hmm. So when you're talking about actions and ethics, is it just around that particular time and space when you're conducting a ritual? Or is it about kind of your, how are you living that out in your regular day-to-day -day life? So ethics, I think, apply to everything. And there's a good deal of talk about what it means to be a good person, an honorable person, right relationship. Within ADF, we have these virtues that we sort of begin with in our earliest training. And it kind of weaves through everything. At its core, the actual formal practice within the church, and this is something that has taken into my life, is all about developing the guest host relationship, behaving in good, right relationship in that way. I could go super nerdy and say it comes from the Proto-Indo-European word gosti, which is itself the relationship of the guest and the host, both guest and host come there, derived from that. And so it's this idea that treating others well, when they come into your space, you have to offer them drink, you have to treat, you know, make them comfortable, make them home. When people are in your space, they are expected to behave in a certain way. There's this sense of mutual obligation that forms that relationship. And we have a similar situation with the divine. We make offerings to the god in divine nature spirits, ancestors, what have you. They give us blessings or advice in return. So there's that exchange of power, or not even power, exchange of energies that is mm -hmm. at the foundation of what we do. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And I talk about, you know, my particular brand of religion is Catholic Christian. And in that tradition, there's a lot of sense about hospitality. And so I think people can really relate to that. But I like the mutuality aspect of it that you might bring to it, that it's not just one-sided. So. so how did you get involved with the local Grove and even move up into leadership? 
Short answer is I founded it. <laughs> <laughs> that helps. Longer answer is I ran a smaller grove for a few years in my early 20s and that disbanded. I had a few friends from there. After I went through, completed a training program through ADF and was initiated. So I went through this, you know, pretty intense ritual, came out with like a certification. I've got some fancy ropes. It's great. Once I came through that, a couple of the people were like, hey, Ashley, are you going to start doing public rituals again? And I'm like, I wasn't thinking about it. So (laughs) we met in a coffee shop, planned our first one, and it's been growing from there. Wow. And about how many in general, how large would you say the local grove is? I would say we have a core membership of about 12 to 15 people. Pre-pandemic times, we were pulling 35 people for each of our rituals, which are about every six weeks. Where you know things have been different since the pandemic, but yeah. we had 17 people, I think, at our last ritual, and that one it was our lowest attended, largely because of our location and the time. We tend to get a lot more for our Samhain, which is upcoming, and Yule rituals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which are bigger, bigger times of the year. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. So you talked about that ADF is a place-based pagan culture. What does that mean to have a place-based religion and culture? Okay. So to clear up a misconception, ADF is not place-based. Some people within ADF are working on that. ADF is Indo-European based. My Grove, my mission with my Grove is to help people here and to facilitate developing a relationship with this land. We are currently a very nomadic culture. People move from place to place and they don't really put down roots. A lot of spirituality, many spiritual traditions are based on here's what happened here. Here is my ancestors have been here for so long. You have these roots in the sense of connection. I think that's something that's lacking in modern times and one of the things that I've been trying to develop. So my grove does a lot of work with the local nature spirits. We often make offerings to them. We do road cleanups, environmental care, things like that in order to develop that relationship. And so place-based religion is largely about that. Having this religion that exists here now in this place is influenced by what's happening here and is about connecting to here rather than some transcendent ideal or something that is focused on a distant land like Christianity is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How deep does that go? You mentioned that you make connections with the local flora and fauna that's specific Mm -hmm. to this area, but do you also make connections to the ancestral lands of this area or the ancestral peoples of this area? So we don't specifically work with the ancestral peoples of this area. Within ADF, we work strictly within the Indo-European mythologies, which means not Native American, not African diasporic, not Asian, with the exception of India, and that's Vedic. And that's largely to avoid cultural appropriation. We don't want to be those people who are of a colonialist background taking over the practices of a colonized people. One of the ways we do that is by sticking within certain areas. That said, we begin every ritual with a land acknowledgement that is based off of the one put out by the University of Illinois. 
modified a little bit. So we begin with the land acknowledgement. All of our offerings are, you know, able to be composted or non-harmful to wherever we lay them on the ground or burn them in the fire, as the case may be. Within every ritual, we call on the nature spirits, which are not this nebulous idea of nature, but like that tree over there and this prairie and such. The name of my grove itself, Prairie Sky Grove, is invoking this place. This is something that I've woven into a lot of our rituals and a lot of our activities, as have some of my other members. One person in particular is very dedicated to the local nature spirits and has done a lot of work in promoting that within the Grove, and I love it. What we do, though, it's how each individual interacts with the nature spirits is, of course, going to be up to them. So I sort of weave it into things and kind of plant seeds and how people deal with that is, you know, going to be very individualized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I really appreciate the effort and the intentionality of specifically calling out and bringing awareness to the things that are unique to this place and this time. I agree with you that I think people in general are kind of living in unconnected, untethered bubbles. And the fact that you're being intentional about naming that is is really special. Thank you. Yeah. So you've talked a lot about that ADF is intentional about being inclusive and almost as kind of this umbrella organization of people who bring lots of different practices and lots of different ways of believing. And so what, how might that play out more specifically with your group on a more practical level? And you've given a couple examples, but maybe you can share another example or story. And then what are some of the challenges and or benefits of kind of trying to foster this sense of an inclusive community? That's a big question. (laughs) So I'll try to go into some aspects of it. So first of all, for as an inclusive grove, every member has to affirm that they are willing to treat people equally regardless of race, gender, belief system, yes, even in a religion, physical and mental ability, things like that. Our actual requirements are up on the website, so if people are interested, they can look at it. And it's just a general, don't be a jerk to people who are different than you viewpoint. Um, On a practical level, so we don't focus on, we don't really put much emphasis on gender within our rituals. So it's not like we have to call on a female deity or a male deity. It's whoever makes sense for the season. The masculinity or femininity are not really concepts we work with liturgically. Other forms of paganism absolutely do. Ours does not. Many of our members within ADF um, are queer and transgender. We are very affirming of that. And there's a lot of arguments online about what this means and how important that is. Similarly with whether or not to be involved in anti-racist work, which I try to be, and I try to encourage that within the Grove. 
We are inclusive to age as well. We are specifically family friendly. Many pagan groups are not. And again, that's understandable, not what everybody's looking for, but we want to make sure that people of all ages are welcome and that our activities are appropriate for them. We have children at every ritual, mine and others. Similarly, people at the end of their life. We try to be inclusive towards ability, meaning that I take into account the needs of people who are neurodivergent or have mobility issues within our rituals, as well as our meetings and other events. So trying to be mindful of everybody's needs and differences and respecting that is a big part of it. We're inclusive also in the sense that anybody can show up. All of our rights are open to the public. You do not have to believe anything we believe. You just have to behave well enough to be part of a group. We have Christians within our membership. We have people who have a variety of practices. We have atheists. That's all great. And you do not have to pass any particular tests or requirements to be a member or participate fully. We have had many people take parts in the ritual on the very first time they show up to something. And that's wonderful. I hand out scripts. I press gang people into it. Who wants to do this part? (laughs) And it helps. Yeah. So some of the challenges, I mean, there's a lot more to think about. Also, everybody comes, because we've got such diverse background, everybody comes looking for something different and with their own expectations. It's harder to build a unity of mind and purpose liturgically or just as a, you know, a group when everybody has different wants, needs, desires, and backgrounds. That's one of the reasons why I focus on place-based culture building up around that because that is something that is unified to everybody here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like in your own personal experience, do you think that you were drawn to be part of this group because of their inclusion? Or do you think that you've grown in your sense of inclusion and what that looks like because of your connection with this group? I've always wanted to be in a more open and inclusive and public form of paganism. I've never really wanted to go into one of the closed circle coven type things. That's just not my jam. So that is part of why I was here. My understanding of it has developed a lot personally over the years, as has, frankly, the organizations. We've grown. We've changed. I've been a member for 17 years now, 18 years, actually. And yeah, there's been a lot of change in understanding of what inclusion means. We are less ableist than we used to be. That's on our radar now. One thing that I really like is one of the groves in Ohio has started using the word godden as a gender neutral plural of deity, of God. So it's not gods and goddesses, it's the godden. And so that's mm-hmm. really trying to make things safe and comfortable and push forward this idea of a lot of these divisions don't matter so much. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And being very trans friendly. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's wonderful. And that you're an organization that is again, intentional about those things. It's a great model to be following other than the challenge of, trying to be cognizant of these very diverse expectations and very diverse experiences. What are some other challenges that you've encountered and and maybe even like Uh, 
not just the challenges, but like, how have you accommodated or how have you overcome those challenges? Because I think that's definitely something that other religious organizations can learn from. Because we talk about these like ideals of inclusion, sometimes when, you know, the rubber meets the road, then we don't think about, you know, there's some operational things that we need to do, or there's some, some different ways that we have to change the way we operate in order to actually live out inclusion. <laughs> yeah, that's um, obviously an issue. That's a really important question. We're really lucky that this community is so wonderful and we have so many anti-racist activists and such. So I have not gotten much pushback on our inclusion principles locally. Within the larger world of paganism, this is a much bigger issue for people who have, and these are conversations you see online all the time. There's people who really care about the duality of divine, so gods and goddesses, and they expect that sense of duality within their practice or single sex. There are women only groups. And I very much respect the need for that safe space. We have had concerns about whether or not certain individuals coming to our groups, to our events are safe. So because there's of course abuse within any spiritual tradition. And part of why I focus on the organizational side of things is because it gives us some recourse for situations that may develop that could be abusive. We have had some questions about it. Thankfully, to my knowledge, no significant events, but we have had developed procedures in the event that there are accusations or Mm -hmm. less than stellar behavior. So that is a factor. But mostly it's just been a lot of conversations with people one-on-one and trying to create space that is safe for everybody, welcoming to as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, the fact that you're having proactive conversations and knowing, even anticipating some of the challenges that may come out of inclusiveness or anticipating some of the issues that people might bring to an inclusive community or the needs, maybe not the issues, but the needs that people might have and bring to an inclusive community. People who are connected with institutional religions may be frustrated because they see that there's potential issues, but their institutions aren't willing to dialogue about it or proactively address it. And I'll be honest, that's a problem we have within ADF. There has been many arguments about how ADF responds to issues of the day or issues within the pagan community, including, and it's really unfortunate, there is a strong thread within the larger paganism, especially the European-based polytheistic versions of it, of blatant racism and white supremacy. Some people are drawn to the practices of Northern Europe because of their perceived connection to race. And one of the reasons we are so insistent on the inclusion aspect is we don't want to make a safe space for those people. And that's unfortunately a serious problem. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for being open about that. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about 
the connection with nature. You mentioned that's one of the ways that you're being a little bit more intentional about place. But for many people, regardless of their religious tradition, a lot of people say that they connect with the divine within nature. And so what's been your personal experience of connecting with nature and how you see the divine in that? As you said in the intro, I'm an animist, which means at a personal level, I view there being a spirit in every living thing, in that tree, in that grass, in that forest, what have you. You know, when you walk into a room and you see somebody and you like feel that connection with them, you can tell whether they're a good person or, you know, a safe person, or they're like, oh, that person's giving the heebie-jeebies or what have you. We can have that with trees, with rocks, with inanimate objects. And I use that sensation. I develop that sensation to communicate. God, that sounds crazy. But to really develop that relationship with the natural world. There are certain forests that just feel different than others. I, you know, I like joking about how I have tree friends, but I really do. There is a very old oak tree about a quarter mile from my house that I call Grandfather Oak, and I go out and visit him pretty regularly. And that sense of connection makes me feel grounded and not alone because I am interacting with other beings than myself. And one of the clearest examples of just how important this has been to me was I like traveling some. I love going hiking. I love going outdoorsy. I hike here a lot. I really love hiking out in New Hampshire. So that's been like my second favorite place ever. Meadowbrook is my first. Meadowbrook is the best. (laughs) Uh, But a few years ago, I went out to the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State. And that is a very different environment than what we have here. It's much grander. It's beautiful. It's lovely. But I felt ill at ease being out of my environment with completely different trees, completely different ecosystem. What's west of the Rockies is very different from what's east of the Mississippi. And it was unsettling. And even the friends who were with me were like, Ashley, you don't seem quite right. And it wasn't until we went into a deciduous forest on like my second to last day there and I got to hug a tree that I felt at ease in my own body again, that I felt comfortable and safe. It didn't feel so alien to me. And my friends were noticing, it's like, oh, you're so much happier now. It's like, it was really funny how obvious that switch was for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what just popped in my head was, you know, going to a strange place and not actually greeting the people that are there or interacting with the people that are there. In your experience, you have a relationship with the energy and the entities that are these places. And so if you don't connect with them and you're going about your business, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I can see how that might make you feel unsettled. And I have gotten into the habit of making offerings of water when I go to a new place just to, Uh you know, introduce myself to the spirits there. And that has truly helped. Just Mm -hmm. I can feel the difference when that happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can really appreciate that. I was talking with a person who had moved to this area from Washington State, and we were talking about the differences in the ecosystem and and she was getting to know the area and appreciating the area. And I think when you are aware and open, we really live in a beautiful 
powerfully energetic area and there's as much energy and life in a sea of prairie grass as there is on, you know, the West Coast and the Pacific Ocean. Mm-hmm. We don't need, partially because I live here, I'm not drawn to the grand vistas, but the small flowers and like the like small scale beauty that you can find pretty much anywhere. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I call that out in ritual sometimes and yeah. <laughs> use moss in my practice and things like that. No, I love that. And Meadowbrook is one of my favorite parks too. And I think because you can see so many different small ecosystems just walking around in the park. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about movement. And you're somebody who is passionate about dance. And I loved the term radical embodiment. How are you incorporating movement into your practices and rituals? So I will be honest, I don't do as much as I should. There's we no should. Yeah, that's <laughs> I wish. We don't do much movement within the rituals because I never know where people are. And again, with people's various abilities, that is a factor. I am starting to explore ecstatic dancing and dancing to get into trance and to uh, interact with the spirits in my own practice. And I'm very, very beginning at that. And I know that's something that I'm hoping to develop and experiment with with some members of my grove. We do have some closed activities that are open only to the members, but, you know, any group is going to be like that. So I'm hoping to experiment with that some more. I always do my rituals barefoot, for mm-hmm. example. I think the second or third thing we do in the ritual is we kneel and touch the earth or touch it in some way when we acknowledge the earth mother. So we've got that. When I lead group meditations and trance journeys, I start bringing it back to the body pretty heavily. Many people do focusing on different senses as a way to achieve that connection to the spiritual realm using our bodies and how that feels. I've already talked about the way I interact with nature and that feeling sense and developing that. That's kind of where I get with the whole radical embodiment thing. The movement stuff is not as obvious a part of my spirituality, but it's a big part of my life. And so, you know, interacts with everything. Yeah. Tell me more about ecstatic dance. What is that? Yeah, I'm still figuring that out. There's a lot of traditions. So I'm a, I developed a belly dance habit over the pandemic. So that's been my current obsession. And within Menat culture, some Middle Eastern, North African, you know, dance traditions, there are group situations where people dance in order to invoke the spirits. I'm reading this fantastic book on Middle Eastern dance trance traditions right now. And there are groups that play around with this as well. I just have not had much opportunity to do it. It's all about sensory overload. You've got the drumming, you've got the movement when you spin in circles a lot, like, you know, with the Sufi, the whirling dervishes, Mm -hmm. that shifts something in your brain. Mm -hmm. And so I'm playing around with that. Really neat. And I've noticed in various parts of the religious and spiritual world, I think there's been a lot of things about embodiment and somatic experiences. And I think there's definitely 
a movement to incorporate a movement <laughs> uh, to incorporate our bodies and be more aware and connected with our bodies, especially when it comes to trauma and when it comes to emotions and when it comes to mental health and and all those things, there's such an interplay between all of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I do, um, in my professional life, I deal with a lot of that. Yeah. And so how does, uh, you know, when it comes to embodiment, how does consent play into some of that, especially when you come to community practices or practices with other people? As you, as I'm sure you know, consent is a huge issue in our culture. There's so much pressure and boundary violations just taken for granted within our culture and within spiritual traditions in particular, because many of them are founded on this idea of learning to be a better person, striving towards a goal with the help of an authority figure. And that leads things open to abuse, whether it's, you know, financial abuse, physical, emotional abuse. We're all familiar with sexual abuse within the Catholic Church and many others, as well as spiritual abuse. So we try to weave consent into every aspect of our ritual in the sense that I make it clear at the beginning, you are welcome to participate as much or as little as you choose at any moment. If you need to step away for whatever reason, you can do so. That's part of my opening banter. There's opportunities for people to participate or not. And again, I frame it like that. And as well as to receive the blessings, we actually sprinkle everybody with blessed water towards the end of our ritual for everybody who wants to. And we have had regular members who've contributed significantly to our grove who have never once received the blessings because they chose not to. And so by modeling consent in the rituals in this formalized way and talking about it, I'm hoping that, you know, goes out to the wider culture, people's regular interactions of operating within consent. And with the embodiment thing, I think there's a lot of checking in with your body. Is this what I want? How does this feel? And if it feels good, then you can consent. And if it doesn't feel good, then you're not consenting. And I'm really trying to, you know, make that central to the practice. Mm-hmm. I was talking with somebody the other day about informed choices and what you just said about checking in with your body and even realizing through your consent opportunities that there is a choice or presenting that there is a choice as opposed to just kind of moving along and implied choices as opposed to informed choices. And so I don't think that that's something that we teach in our society. We're not socialized to do that. So how... I guess some tips, you said you're weaving it into your ritual. And so I imagine that's scripted in some way, or at least planned out in some way. But what are some other tips about how people might make that more of a regular part of their normal conversations and interactions? Everything from checking in before a hug or any physical contact 
So it's like, are you up for a hug? Are you in a hugging mood today? If you're a hugger, and some people are, some people are not, I am very much a lot of hugger. So I have to do that <laughs> pretty regularly. When one of the things that I try to do is, you know, when I ask if somebody wants something or if they want to do something, or if I'm asking for a favor, I try to make it easy for them to say no. It's like, you know, hey, do you want to go do something tonight? And if not, that's totally cool. You know, something like that, trying to just weave in the expectation that it is really a free choice. And I'm not saying, yes, we need to go do this. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to take more space to check in with myself and how I feel and what I really want instead of just going along with it. Socialized female, Mm -hmm. I kind of know what that means. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's my own personal work. Mm -hmm. It's all of our work. And and the other thing that we talk about going back a little bit, because I forgot to mention it, is I also really believe that you can consent on a spiritual level in the sense that our relationship with the divine is consensual. There's not a commandment from, you know, whatever God saying you must do this. They can say that and you can be like, yeah, I'm not going to deal with it. And developing boundaries with the gods or spirits that you work with. That's all really important and one of the ways to prevent spiritual abuse and to have a healthy spiritual life. Mm-hmm. I've had I've definitely told spirits and deities no or ended relationships or set boundaries. And I've had some push back and I've had some be like, yeah, I want nothing to do with you. What are you like? Okay. When I've reached out to them. And so it that whole thing matters at every level, including with the divine. Hmm. Again, I really appreciate that. And it is all about relationship and learning how to be in right relationship with yourself, with other people, with your spirituality, and, and creating that sense of intentional choice and even, you know, elevating that, making that much more transparent that there is a choice. So thank you for bringing that up. So if you could sum up your spirituality right now in one or two sentences, what would it be? Building connections with a more than human world. Mm, I like that. So how can people find out about Prairie Sky Grove or more about ADF or get in touch with you? How can they connect? So we have a Facebook page, Prairie Sky Grove. You're welcome to follow us there. We have a secret Facebook group because, again, a lot of people have to keep be private about their practices. So if somebody wants to be a member of our Facebook group, which is where our discussions happen, you have to you know, be Facebook friends with one of our members. Just base level security there. We also have a website, prairieskyadf.org. If you're curious about the larger organization, it's adf.org. And you can email me uh, directly at prairieskyadf at gmail.com. Or for those of you who know me in person, you know, feel free to chat about this stuff whenever or send your friends my way. I've had that happen plenty of times too. Great. So I always like to end our conversations with kind of these rapid fire questions just to get a little bit of extra, you know, special sauce on the ends. Are you up for that? Sure, let's go. (laughs) All right. So something that people get wrong about you. That I'm not shy. (laughs) (laughs) So people think that you're shy or people don't think that you're shy? Most people don't think I'm shy. I'm very extroverted, but I also keep a lot private. And so the 
social face is a mask and I'm definitely shy on the inside. (laughs) (laughs) What's your favorite or most meaningful spiritual practice right now? Oof. So my most meaningful spiritual practice is I am deepening my relationship with the Irish God of the sea, Mananan Maclear, and have just built a shrine to him and have been making offerings to that daily. Hmm. That's really neat. Where do you see the divine as most alive for you in this season? In this season, in the wind, in the shift in the wind, I feel it there and in the flame. This is a very candle-focused, fire-focused season, and so I feel the divine there. Mm -hmm. What's one thing in your life that might seem ordinary but is sacred for you? Bread baking. Oh, what are you deeply grateful for right now? Oh, gosh. Uh, I mean, I have immediate thing that comes to mind is iced tea. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Unsweetened. Uh, Unsweetened. Definitely. I do do not put sugar in my tea. (laughs) Do not put sugar in my tea. Maybe I'm very grateful for tea. (laughs) Small sensory things. That's my favorite. That's what's most important to me. And what I'm most grateful for is the good feels, whatever that may be. Mm -hmm. And today's iced tea. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. Name a book that you would recommend to the audience to read. Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. A lot of my ideas about place-based paganism and interacting with the natural world, I got some of that from there. I articulated it better after reading it. And I love her idea of becoming indigenous to place. And I've taken that on as a personal spiritual goal. Mm-hmm. That just came up in another conversation that I have. So it is the best thing ever. Everybody should read it. Huh, that's really neat. We were actually talking about it in context of contemplative spirituality and being extricated from the power of institutions. And that's cool too. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I always say when I hear about things two or three times, it means that I'm being called to look into it further. So I think I might need to go get that book. Well, is there anything else you want to leave our audience with? This has just been a fascinating conversation. And I really appreciate your transparency. And I've certainly learned a lot and have just a, I think I've, I've always, you know, had a respect for uh, people who practice pagan religions, but I've learned a lot from you. And I really appreciate that. So anything else you want to add? Not that I can think of. If anybody's really into mythology and wants to nerd out with me, they're welcome to send me a message. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't talk about that nearly enough, but that's okay. That's really Um, cool. So do you prefer Greek or Roman or another or a Viking or um, any and all? I'm an Irish polytheist, so I mostly I'm most familiar with that, but I've read a lot of other mythologies and it's just fun. (laughs) Crazy stories are the best. (laughs) Crazy stories are amazing. So, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time that you gave to us, Ashley. And and again, it was just so wonderful to be engaged in this conversation. Well, thank you so much, Kelly. It's been wonderful meeting you. All right. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to Everything is Spiritual and taking time to nourish your soul. Tune in each week for a little community and a lot of conversation. 
or subscribe in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. For more resources around spiritual exploration, restoration, and transformation, be sure to sign up on our mailing list at experiencesoulcare.com. Visit our website for information on retreats, workshops, and services from our partners. Or better yet, come visit our welcoming space in Urbana to say hi and get a steaming cup of tea. Soul Care Urban Retreat Center is a warm, welcoming, and accessible place for you to refresh, renew, and restore your mind, body, heart, and soul. We set a great big table, and everyone is welcome. Until next week, be well.